0: prayer and then the reading of his word let's pray together now blessed god we do come honoring your name and we come acknowledging and recognizing lord your sovereign power and glory and lord we come submitting ourselves to that majesty and glory we ask O lord for understanding and light we ask lord that you would take this portion of of James and make it familiar to us make it understandable to us Lord make it uh, Lord uh, where we receive it as manna from heaven help us to divorce ourselves even this very hour from the philosophies of this world that would compete with it that would hamper uh, Lord in any way hinder us from accepting the righteous truth that's presented to us this morning Help us, Lord, in this congregation, young and old. Lord, put off our idolatry and embrace the true and living God. And We pray and ask this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus, our mediator. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I want to begin reading at verse 2, and I want to read down through verse 4. Hear now the word of the living God. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Now, brothers and sisters, hopefully this morning we'll be able to move through those few verses and at least walk away with some understanding of what James is calling us to do. Now, at first reading, I'm, I'm tempted and I'm going to do it. I mean, James must be out of touch. He must be out of touch. He must be that theologian that spends all his time reading books and sort of clustered away in his study and he's out of touch with what's going on in the world. He's out of touch with people and their suffering. I mean, to write these kinds of words. To write these words where he commands Christians to consider it all joy as they... Encounter and experience all kinds of trials and tribulations. He must be an insensitive man. Harsh. Not compassionate. If he were compassionate, if he was a pastor of of today's, common group I don't know how else to say it of today's cloth he might begin in a more sensitive place touching on someone's feelings and asking well how did you feel And, and and really trying to get on the level of an emotional level where he might be able as a life coach Bring them to a a better place where they they feel better about themselves. I mean, that's what a lot of pastors are doing today. A lot of pastors are more concerned about someone's feelings rather than God's truth. They're more interested in placating the person than they are honoring the Word of God. The God of heaven. You see, James is not out of touch. James is not unloving. He's not harsh. James is not tucked away in some study somewhere, only reading books and not familiar with the sufferings and trials of people. James was very familiar with hardships and difficulties. You read the book of Acts. James, James was very much experienced hardships he, he experienced the hardships of those Jerusalem Christians. He was there when Stephen was martyred. And James is not someone out of touch with reality. In fact, he is someone that's been touched by the Holy Spirit and by the finger of God. And he knows what Christians need is a Christian mindset. A Christian heartbeat. A Christian perspective as we walk through this life. And that's exactly what James does in this little general epistle. He wants us, as we experience the trials and tribulations and tests of life, he wants us to respond in a way that brings honor and glory to God. And he wants us to honor not only God's name, but he wants us to grow up in our faith. I mean... One of the things that we have seen and will continue to see as we go through this book is that James does not believe in a static, passive faith. He doesn't believe that. He doesn't believe that someone can claim to be a Christian and yet be inactive in Christian things. Hmm? I mean, go figure. He doesn't believe that someone can be a professor of Christ and yet not a follower of Christ. He doesn't believe that faith is inactive as it is relatable to the Word of God, to the law of God. That's why he says the things he says. For James, faith is a very active, it is a very dominant feature of one's life. What you believe, what you hold to, the gods you serve will be evident in the life you live. You can't hide it. I mean, we've heard it said before. I've said it from this pulpit. And, then, and I think it, it uh, ought to be said now, right? I mean, if you were to go to trial, could you even be convicted of being a Christian? To be convicted of being a Christian, you means you'd have to be you would have to be doing Christian things, and then it wouldn't have to even take another step. It wouldn't just be doing Christian things. It would be: Are these your convictions? Do you really sincerely hold to these doctrines and truths? And if you were put on the stand, what would you say? If you were put under the pressure of denying Christ or following Christ and bearing the consequences, what would you do? These brothers and sisters that James is writing to have been dispersed. They are called in verse 1 the dysphoria. They have been scattered abroad. And they have been scattered abroad because of persecution, because of hatred, prejudices. They were being persecuted because of their own nationality, their own Jewish people despised their following of Christ, accepting the acceptance of Christ as the promised Messiah sent from God in human flesh. They could not conceive of the idea that Christ of humble means would lay His life down as a ransom for many. They couldn't accept that. So they persecuted their brothers and sisters. They persecuted their brethren, if you will, in a national sense, for believing in Jesus Christ. And the Greeks and the Gentiles also persecuted these believers because they thought it was ludicrous and foolish to believe in one God. Why believe in one when you can believe in many? Why hold to one philosophy when you can have access to many philosophies? When your situational ethics can be molded and shaped to whatever you need it to be at the moment you need it. Why would you consider only one philosophy of life? Why would you consider only one moral law? Why would you consider only one true and living God when you can have many? And they were being persecuted. Now these words do not come to people that are unfamiliar with suffering. They had lost their lands. They had lost their homes. They had lost their jobs. Some of them had been thrown into jail. Some of them had been taken to court. That's what James deals with. He says that the rich have taken you to court. It's very similar, beloved. It's, um, how, how do you make this relatable to our day and time? It, it's like a spouse, a Christian spouse, who gets taken to divorce court by an ungodly spouse. And the Christian spouse is maligned, the christian spouse's views of of christianity is considered narrow hatred prejudiced harmful to a pluralistic society and the unchristian spouse gets all the money, gets the children, gets gets whatever. It doesn't matter if it's male or female. It doesn't matter because the Christian has to undergo the trial and tribulation. This is similar to this. This is exactly what James is dealing with. This is the kind of suffering. This is the, exactly the trials and temptations that Christians face every week in this country and in other places. It's losing the job because you hold to certain practices and moral principles that may keep you from obeying certain instructions by your boss who may who may who may require you to do things that are sinful you lose your job how would you handle that how does that how does that spouse who professes the name of Christ handle that situation how does that employer, employee, handle that in situation? You know, uh, it wasn't that long ago it grieved me to read. It, you know, this, this country of ours, as it continues to decline in this moral cesspool that it's determined to be in, it highlights Sin. It magnifies, it calls sin good. Okay? We see that right on all, a lot of the television programming. I mean, it, it, it highlights, it magnifies, it makes, it makes everything that's opposed to God's moral law attractive, appealing, good, and a blessing. And those are lies. The question really for God's people is, are you convinced their lies? Are you convinced that God's Word says that these things are false, untrue, and worthy of curse and cursing? Now, I don't mean cuss words when I say cursing. I mean in the ultimate end, being cursed with eternal damnation and separation from God and His glory. There was a, a young person, I don't know all the details, but I do know this much. This young person had had come out of the, the sexual closet, so to speak, and had now professed to be a homosexual in their orientation, and the parents were devastated. I think the parents were Christians, and that just highlighted the issue because they were not going to pay for him to go off to college because of his new sexual you know his position. They were not going to support him going off to school as a homosexual. And of course that took I guess a life of its own and some some who want to call evil good started to go fund me um, page. And there was over $30,000 raised for him to go to college. So the parents really didn't have any say-so anyway. How are those parents to handle that situation? It's interesting, right? I mean, Christians coming together and doing good things, right, Chuck? And now we've also seen how unbelievers come together to do evil things, right? You know Psalm 2, they gather. They don't want God's moral law. They gather together and they they don't want the the, the binds. They don't want the bonds of God's moral law. They want to pull those off. They want to shake those off. They want to get rid of those things. And they want to shake their fist in the face of God. They want to rally and they want to get as many people with them as they can. And they want to fight and rail and curse and, and, and just absolutely oppose the sovereign will and rule of God. Now, it's futile and it's not going to last. But yet, there are temporal consequences. And these are the places where we are, aren't they? These are the places we live by. These are the things that we're faced with. These are the things we encounter. Now, you can encounter these in a home school situation or a Christian school situation. A public. It doesn't matter where you are. You may be faced with these moral decisions and dilemmas that you need to make sure... That you have the right mindset about it. And that's why we need to study the book of James. James is not out of touch. In fact, he's very much in touch. He knows what's going on. He's very compassionate. He knows that the best place for us to be as professing believers is under the moral governance and guidance and submission to God. And that's what we've got to learn to do, right? We've got to learn to submit. That's why James is writing this. That's one of the hardest things it is to do, though, isn't it? Submit. It's hard to submit when you don't feel like it, when you don't want to, and when you think you've been done wrong. It's hard to submit, isn't it? Pride gets in the way. How many times have we said to ourselves, I don't deserve this? And that may actually be a true statement in the short term. I don't deserve. No, I mean, no one deserves to be mistreated. I mean, I don't deserve to walk over to Andre and beat him up like I could do that. I don't des- he doesn't deserve that. But the attitude and mindset that when things befall us that are out of our control to be, I don't deserve, that's a completely different matter. We don't deserve, right? And, and that's exactly what so much commercial advertising, right? Jobs, you deserve this. See, advertisers have ab- absolutely learned the essential fallen principle that we love pampering. We love being told lies. We like being lied to. We like hearing you don't deserve this. We like hearing you deserve so much more. We like hearing you ought to have this. We like hearing these things. We like hearing how good we are. We like hearing anything that pampers us. We like that. And that's a dangerous place, beloved. It's dangerous. One theologian said that if there's one doctrine that the world absolutely despises, it's the sovereignty of God. It's the governance of God, His providence. The world absolutely hates the idea that there is one moral God governing everything. And that's why even churches today have gotten into this mindset that, you know, it's almost just a friendship with Jesus instead of a commitment to Jesus. And, you know, you don't have to repent of your sins. You don't have to repent of your sins. And Jesus loves you the way you are. Just come on. Just to have a friendship with Him. No big deal. And there's no repentance. There's no change of life. I mean, that's why you have so many movements now springing up, challenging the church, faithful of the church. The whole revoice thing that's going on in some of our Presbyterian circles. This this whole uh, LBGT, uh, you know, I'm a Christian, but I'm a homosexual. What's the problem? I mean, the church is absolutely... And some sections falling all over themselves to embrace it. And some church sections are, are are kind of building the battle boards, if you will. We're going to fight against this. There's no way this can be true and valid. And, and there's a great rift in the church. Now, it shouldn't be that way, but it's true. We're faced with all kinds of trials and tests and tribulations some of them are personal some of them are individual some of them are familial some of them are church oriented i just mentioned one the whole revoice the the identity movement Uh, you know can you be a homosexual and be a christian what even kind of question is that you read your bible and you can answer the question for yourself the bible is that clear about it the apostle paul says as such were some of you i mean no longer that's true brothers and sisters, if you're at a place where you can take the clear reading of Scripture and make it whatever you want it to be, what is that? Are you comfortable with that? Are you comfortable taking the clear reading of God's Word and just making it say whatever you want it to say, no matter what it actually says? See, that's where where we are in many cases. And these are the things we need to think about this morning. Well, let's begin looking at the text itself. Now, the doctrine that we are resting upon is the, that God alone is the sovereign ruler of the universe. That He alone is the sovereign ruler and governor of all men and their actions. Now, listen to me. Especially His care and favor for His church. God is the sovereign rule and governor of all men and their actions. Especially His care and favor for His church. Now let's establish the doctrine and let's move into some application. Take your Bibles and let's look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Now, all of, what I want to do is I'm going to establish these two points that I've made in my definition of God's sovereignty. It's a simple definition. It's not complex. It's not uh, doesn't have a lot of facets to it. It's just simple. God is the govern, the sovereign governor of men and their actions, especially His care and favor for the church. Okay, two things. Look at Hebrews chapter one and verse three. Uh, let's look at verse 1 and following. It says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. And, here's our phrase, upholds All things by the word of His power. Okay? Upholds all things by the word of His power. I'm going to stop there. So what does the word of God teach us about Jesus Christ? First of all, He's the complete representations and He he is God. That's what it means. He's the radiance of His glory. That is, Jesus Christ is God. And He's not... God in any lesser degree than God. He's God in the full measure of the sense of sovereignty, power, glory, and majesty. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is both God, fully God, and man. And as God and man, He upholds all things by the word of His power. He upholds all things by the word of His power. Now listen to me. This has a bearing and effect upon how we are to view the world we live in. For example, global warming. Does that mean that, that we can't experience temporal um, uh, temporal catastrophes? Nuclear meltdowns? Um, what happens when there's serious contamination with radiation and and whatever uh those types of things no it doesn't matter does it mean that global warming may or may not be real no that's not my point my point is this when we talk about catastrophe and we talk about the end of the world and we talk about apocalypse if we as christians can't consider this verse and understand that the lord jesus upholds all things by the word of his power there's a problem we're not thinking like christians this world is going to stay the course that Christ has set for it to stay. It is not going to end in any... You know, asteroids are going to hit the world. We're going to all start over. I heard this on TV. We're going to reset everything. And what is the source of that mindset and philosophy is that we evolved out of nothing. We live basically for nothing. And we go to nothing. It has nothing to do with God. As Christians, we must come to these to this science and to these problems and we must interject the truth of God's word. We must why should we bring to bear the truth of God's word even in environmental matters? Because we don't know who made the world other than God. The world didn't make itself. Those trees just did not pop out of nothing. Those mountains just did not create themselves. God is the creator of all things, and he upholds all things. He's the sovereign ruler and power of all things. He caused them into he called them, spoke them into existence. That's why the doctrine of God's creation is no small matter. If you can erase this the importance of God being creator, in a very supernatural way, you have opened the door for all of this gender confusion. You've opened the door to all of this sexual confusion and orientation. You've opened the door to all of these various sciences that can be whatever they want it to be because what? Man becomes the authority, not God's Word. I implore you this morning, young people, old people, this is the truth. And we are subject in our fallenness to believe lies. We are subject in our fallenness to believe to believe in the fantastical and deny the very supernatural power and nature of God's word. We will gravitate to the idiotic if we're not careful. Rather than embrace the clear teaching of God's Word. God said He was the Creator. The Bible says He spoke everything into existence. What's the problem with believing it? Look at another passage of Scripture. Um, took at Acts 17. Now, obviously this morning, I'm being very Dogmatic. I know that surprises some of you. But there's a place for dogmatism in the church. There used to be a section of theology called dogmatic theology. And it was those essentials that the church were firm on and without negotiation. Now, we live in such a pluralistic time. Churches are willing to compromise the truth in order to embrace the masses and fill up their buildings. But I think we need to be careful and we need to understand these are things that are essential. That means, brothers and sisters, that we ought to be dogmatic about them. God is sovereign. God is the governor of men and their actions. And God especially in His favor and compassion and love for the church governs her in a very special way. That's us, those who believe. But look at Acts 17, verse 25. Well, verse 24, And God who made the world... Now notice these truths we've been talking about. God who made the world and all things in it... Obviously, Paul's out of touch. I mean, with a lot of Presbyterians... Who believe otherwise? God, who made the world and all things in it, since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Now, I'm going to stop there. What's the point? The point that I'm enforcing with you is that God is the governor of all men and their actions. All men, saved and unsaved. We are, in essence, all part of the same human family. We all come from one set of parents Adam and Eve. One set of parents. And in Adam, we all fail. We all fail in Adam and our affections, our emotions, our reasoning, our thinking, all that, we, that makes us human have become contaminated and polluted. And what does that mean? It means we will choose anything other than God unless God intervenes into our lives. Unless God in His sovereign power comes into our lives, inhabits us with His Holy Spirit, and begins to teach us and instruct us and open our eyes that we can see the truth. Without that, you can't see the truth. Without that, you can't know the truth. See, that's why Jesus, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, the teachers of Israel, right? The religious leaders, he looked at them and he said, Wait a minute, let me see if I can understand this. I've been in your midst teaching you, and you reject my teaching. Now I'm paraphrasing this in Matthew. You reject my instruction, you reject my teaching, yet you can discern the color of the sun, and you can say, look, it's going to be a clear day tomorrow. It's going to be this kind of day tomorrow. You can discern the day and you can make determinations about tomorrow based upon your observations today and yet you cannot discern who's standing in front of you teaching you the Word of God. Why? Because you're spiritually dead. Men can look at the weather and say it's about to rain and never know Christ. They can make discernments and calculations and determinations that are accurate and good. But when it comes to the saving of their soul, when it comes to knowing the God of glory, when it comes to embracing the true and living God, when it comes acknowledging the one essential truth of the sovereignty of God and the one true and living God over all the other false gods of this world, they can't see it and won't see it. And they'll reject it every time. The Bible is clear, beloved. God is the governor of all men. Even the very small things of life. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29 and 30. The Word of God tells us that not one sparrow falls to the ground that God didn't know about it. The Bible teaches us in that... Passage of Scripture that He knows how many hairs are on your head now and will be tonight when you lay down. The small things do not escape His knowledge and wisdom. Well, how does that affect the way you're going to see your trials and tribulations? How is that going to affect the way you see these possible tests that you may find yourself in? Because when James talks about these things, he speaks of them as being um, a surprise. I think that's a a good word. Notice the language James uses here. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials this this idea of counter is the idea of fall it's the idea of unexpected it's unexpected you didn't see it coming and it's there you didn't know about it until it happened and you're faced with it you're being tested by it and i can read to you multiple passages of scriptures that deal with testing I hope you can do that. I'm just going to read a couple of passages that help you understand that God in His sovereignty God in His power, God in all of His majesty and glory has a very special place in His His plan. A very special place in His mind. I'm going to use the word heart for His church. That's you. Very special. That's why you're being tested. That's why you will be tested. The Lord knows you intimately. But the Lord wants you to know you. He wants us to know ourselves. And He wants us not to be deceived. He doesn't want us to grasp the lies that float around us every day. He doesn't want us to grasp these, these unrealistic calculations of ourselves, our character, and all these things. He wants us to be sober-minded. He wants us to be critical. In our, not, 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 listen, there is a good sense of the word being critical. You know? I'm weak over here. I have some strong points by God's grace here. I really need to work on this over here. And you may be surrounded by even churchmen that say, You're great. You're good. You're doing a wonderful job. And you may very well be in all purposes of human work and endeavors, but you ought to have a a correct estimation of yourself. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Let's go ahead and establish God's favor for His church. Chapter one. I'm just. Let's look at um, verse twenty-one and following, where he talks about Jesus Christ being raised from the dead, seated at the right hand. of of God in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all what is Paul teaching us here? Paul's teaching us here that Christ Jesus has been raised to the right hand of God whereby He might what? Govern over the church in a very special, favorable way. What a blessing. Look at Romans chapter 8. There's a pagan way to see Romans 8, and then there's a biblical and a godly way to see Romans 8. Let's look at the passage itself What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? Now, brothers and sisters, that applies to the church. Now, there's a pagan understanding of this, and here's here's that pagan understanding. The pagan understanding goes like this. Well, God's in control, and all I'm going to do, these trials and tribulations come into my life, and I'm just going to bear through them. I'm just going to passively suffer through them. But we're going to get to the end of it. That's a pagan way of addressing those problems. That's not the way a Christian ought to adjust, uh, uh, face those issues. A Christian comes understanding what Romans 8 said, being conformed to the image of his son. These things are in my life to conform me to the image of Christ. They're not just so I can bear through them and say, Hey, hey, I got battle scars. I'm all stitched up. I'm hobbling along. But I made it through that hard time. Yes, sir. I just, I'm stoic. I just got to grin and bear it. That grin and bear it mentality is not Christian. Stoicism. Stoicism is not Christianity. I'm tough. I'm strong. I'm just going to get through it. I'm going to grip my teeth. I'm going to pull my bootstraps up and I'm just going to go through. That's not the way a Christian ought to face trials and tribulations. In fact, a Christian recognizes they don't have the ability to do any of that apart from God's grace. See, we think too highly of ourselves, don't we? We think way too highly of ourselves. In fact, we ought to recognize, Lord... Listen, how many times have you been tested and you failed to even praise God? You failed to give thanks to God. I mean, you failed. What does the Bible say? If anyone is happy, let him sing praises. When's the last time you trained your heart and mind to give God praise because He's shaping and molding you into the image of His Son and He does it in a way that you have to respond to it? See, James is not about passivity. See, James isn't that we just get together, call ourselves Christians, sing a few hymns, hear the pastor do his thing, and we go home. No, Christianity is active. It's engaging. It's complete, total... Aspect of our lives, who we are, our character, and God brings these tests into our lives so that He might show us how much He loves us, that we would be conformed to the image of His blessed Son. How many times have we suffered and did it in a way that's unbecoming of a Christian? Let's just all admit it. What we did is we got bitter. And even pagans will say, oh, you can get bitter or better. Well, it's not about improving my stock and my humanity. It's about me being conformed to the image of Christ. It's not about me being a better man. It's not about me just being a better husband or a better pastor or a better human. It's about me being what we were created to be in the image of God, righteousness, justice, and peace and glory. It's about the original creation. And in Christ we get back there in Adam. Christ is our Adam who's leading us into this promised land and this paradise, right? And we can only get there through him. And it could be the absence of a person you really like. Maybe the Lord's teaching you to trust in Him, cultivate that aspect. Maybe, maybe it's the loss of something, maybe it's the gain of something right you can be tested with prosperity what are you going to do with it you can be tested with loss will we respond in a way said lord give me wisdom give me eyes to understand we talked about wisdom right discerning between this and that what's the best way for me to use this wealth What's the best way for me to use my gifts and talents? What's the best way for me to be an older brother or sister? What's the best thing that I can do in order to enhance the faith and the environment of my home and my church? You see, brothers and sisters, we are too apt to be bitter. We are too apt to be sinfully angry. We're too apt to be vindictive. That doesn't mean there are not wrongs, it doesn't mean there are not sins. The Bible has, you know, if you get sinned against, that's a real thing. It's not fake. How we respond to those things is paramount to our character building in Christ. I'm not going to look at any more passages. I think we've pretty much handled that. Let's look at what James is commanding of us here. He says, consider it all joy. What's the word consider mean? Well, the word consider means to calculate. It means to think about. It means to evaluate. It means that we must bring an an energy and a work to the process of the test. We're falling into an exam, and we know what exams do, right? Test your knowledge. Why do you take tests in school? Well, the teacher needs to know, are you listening or not? And she can evaluate by how many you get correct or how many you get wrong. if Whether or not you understand or whether or not you're listening. Maybe you're listening you just don't understand. So the grade helps you know where you are in that subject. And this is what the tests of life are all about. Consider it. Spend time thinking about. Calculating. Making assessments about the situation. Don't just respond emotionally. Oh, how can anything like this happen to me? I don't deserve this. My life is so difficult. Pity party city. And we're good at pity parties. Amen. Everybody say amen. We're good at it. I'm good at it. I wish I was not so good at it. I I don't want to be good at it, but I'm very good at it. James challenges all of that and he says, listen, you must begin to respond, not emotionally, but with your renewed mind, thinking and assessing the things that you need to do. Now listen, here's what I mean by that. We don't have the ability to look into the secret things of God. Don't ask yourself, what is God trying to do with me? That's not the question you need to ask. You don't know the secret mind of God. And guess what? God ain't going to tell you His secrets. Nor should He. He's not obligated to tell you His secrets. That's what kills You know, so many men think that God is nothing more than that. They're beck and call to tell them whatever they want to know, when they want to know it. And God is not that God. He's above us. He's God. The question we need to ask ourselves is, Oh Lord, will you give me the grace to make the right assessment? Lord, are you driving me to your word? When's the last time have I really sought your face in your word? I mean, if this is the, the book of truth, you ought to be reading it. Lord, Make my prayers effectual. What did Jesus say? Pray in this way Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What do we ought to pray for? Lord, we asked that the temptation would not touch us, but now that it has, how should we pray? Lord, help me in this environment grow in my Christian character, grow in my praise, grow in my steadfastness and faithfulness. I don't know what that means. See, I don't know what degree you're going to do all that in, but I know in God, in your grace, if I will give myself to the prayer and the reading of Scripture, my Christian fellowship, if I'll give myself over to the means of grace, the taking of the Lord's Supper, I'm going, these things are going to happen in my life. Now listen to me. Does that mean you're not supposed to do the ABCs, you know, the, the itemized list. Pray more, yeah, Maybe, yeah, maybe so. Maybe you need to be praying more. Maybe you need to be reading more. Maybe, Hey, maybe you just need to be meditating more on what you do read. If you read the Word of God and you just go right on out and jump on your phones and your, everything else, I mean, give the Word of God some time. No farmer throws seed into the field and just leaves it. Cultivates it fertilizes it, waters it, weeds it, does everything he humanly can to do what? Make that seed prosperous to grow, come to fruit. You sow the Word of God in your heart, brothers and sisters, give it some time, pray about it, pray over it. Talk about it. Talk to your brothers and sisters about it, physically and spiritually. Talk to people about it. Talk to people who know more than you do about it. Seek to understand it so that you can discern this and that. Consider it means to think about it, to dwell on it, to to ponder that. It takes time, and that's something that we say we don't have a lot of today. Time. What are we to ponder? Well, notice what the text says. Consider it all joy. What is joy? Joy is not a fake expression of happiness. Joy is not a fake expression of happiness. It's not the plastering of a smile on your face when you are absolutely hurting in your heart. The Bible teaches us there are people in our midst that are hurting. And what should we do with them? Weep with them. There are some people that can't smile right now. And now what they need? They need a hug. They need a friend. They need a brother and sister to come along beside them and, and show compassion. You're happy. You're smiling. See, don't feel bad. Don't feel bad that what God's doing in your life is not what God. God's working in every one of us something different, but yet something similar. And that is we're all being conformed into the image of God. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are all under his favor. And governance of love. And he is going to accomplish. His purposes. And he's going to use the trials of this life. And the tests and the exams of this life. To get us there. Why? Because our God's all powerful. He can use everything. L- listen. God can use sinful people. In your life. To make you a more godly person. Hmm? Yeah, can he? Right, he's all powerful. Right. Did God use Babylon to chase in Israel? Yes, He did, and then He used another pagan nation, Assyria, to chase in Babylon. Who's the governance? Who's the governor of all men? God is. Who causes kingdoms to rise and fall? God does, and who uses sinful people in the lives of His children? To cultivate in them godly character and virtues. God does. He can use health problems. Economic, financial problems. Who will you trust? Will you trust money? Will you trust God? Yeah. We shouldn't put our trust in mammon. Yet money is very important, isn't it? Don't pay your light bill. Guess what? You're not going to have lights. But you see, brothers and sisters, everything in perspective. Everything in a godly perspective. Not the way the world calculates things, not the way the world sees things, but the way a Christian ought to see things. That is, all of this is happening by the hand of a sovereign, loving God who comes into my life and it touches even people around you, right? right. Families go into trial and tribulation, it affects the children too. Sometimes parents forget that. Joy is a truth. It's not just an emotion. It's a fact. It's the truth. It's that God is working His glory and power on my behalf to bring me to the blessed image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, I can be glad that I'm a member of the family of God. That God loves me and He's caused me to love Him. I know what God is doing. I mean, I don't know the intimate reasons and details per se, but I know He's working on my behalf for my good, for His glory. And for that, I can say, Amen. I can praise God. And it doesn't matter if it's physical. It doesn't matter if it's... What about spiritual trials? The shaking of one's faith. The falling into a secret sin that only you and God know about. And you're shaken to the core. Will you seek God's face? Will you you pursue Him? Will it scare you? Or will you go, well, you know, God's in control. See, listen to me. That's the way the world responds. Well, God's in control. Fatalism. We're not fatalists. You heard me say from this pulpit just a few weeks ago, your life is made up of a series of choices. Who made those choices? You did. Did you do it apart from the sovereignty of God? No but you're responsible for those choices you make. James deals with that later on in chapter 1 because he knows very he knows the human condition and he knows that what people hear in these verses are this, well, then God must be responsible for my sin. He's going to address that. Just not this morning. Brothers and sisters, Joy is the environment. Joy is the condition. We ought to consider these things and count it joy. We ought to determine that what God has got His hand in and is working towards ought to bring us joy. Listen to me. If you cannot be joyful, if you can only be bitter, if you can only be sinfully angry, if you can only respond unrighteously, you're not a Christian. Because only Christians... Only Christians can count it all joy. Does that, did you hear me say that only Christians do it perfectly? No. But brothers and sisters, because you are Christians, you can do it. Because the Holy Spirit is working in you to do it. And the Holy Spirit is working in you the Word of God to do it. Your strength is not in yourself. It's in the Holy Spirit working in you and with you. A non-Christian will refuse to submit to the sovereign, loving hand of God every time. Won't do it. I don't deserve this. I deserve better than this. Won't do it. The last thing I want to look at briefly... And we'll cover it, I think, again next week. When i going to have to. I just want to mention it. Is the outcome or the reason why. Look what he says there in verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result. So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This is the reason why we are put in various trials. Big ones, small ones, serious ones, not so serious ones. This is why. Because the goal of our faith is to be perfect in Christ and complete. Mature. Now, if you've arrived, get up and leave. The sermon is for you. If you've arrived and you don't, you know, there's no reason for you to be tried and tested and all of these things, you can leave. This doesn't apply to you. But if you have not arrived, and there's areas of, of, of that need to be addressing in your thinking. Let me ask you this. You've got a lot of good doctrine. You've got a lot of good, solid thinking in your head. Does your emotions comport with that thinking? Do your emotions always comport with the facts and the truth? Do your actions always comport with you, what you believe and convictions? Or do sometimes your actions are contrary to what you profess to believe? Sometimes your emotions are contrary to what you profess to believe, right? See, all of that is being worked out together for your good. That our thoughts, our convictions, our knowledge, our wisdom would comport to our emotions. We would begin to think and respond emotionally, right? All in the image of Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, that's the goal. And that only comes from that goal, comes from the hand of a sovereign, loving God who knows what you need more than you do. He knows what every church needs, He knows what every denomination needs. And He knows how to get us there. Here's the question I have for you this morning as we close. The only way you can submit to such trials and testing is to be a a faithful follower of Christ. Being a faithful follower of Christ, you've repented of your sins and you've embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior. You've embraced Him as the object of your faith. You've embraced Him as the object of your completion, maturity, and perfection. That is, to be like Christ is the goal of your life. As you walk and are discipled in the doctrines of Christianity, you want to be like Jesus. Will you start submitting to these trials and temptations in a godly way? Will you repent? of ungodly responses will you seek to know the truth of god's word and make that your truth make that your conviction will you divorce yourself from the philosophies and the vanity of this world brothers it's all vanity we we love vanity in our flesh we love vanity We love the cheap and tawdry toys of life. We love vanity. We love the idea of being perfected without any trial or tribulation. And yet, what did our Lord have to do? Our Lord came and suffered and died. Are you above your Master? Are you above your Savior? Who had to learn obedience? Are you above Christ? Now, oh, brothers and sisters, will you view the testing and the trials and the tribulations in your life as the hand of a loving Father? And will you today repent of for despising the chastening hand of your Father and embrace, embrace it with joy? Let's pray.